Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. Now, Sheena, I'm going to throw a number at you and see if you can guess, guess where I'm headed here. If I told you that there was a Silicon Valley startup worth $36 billion, who would you guess that it is? It's wow. not Gong. It's not Gong. I'm sorry. I wish it's it not. Was. Yeah, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is one company out there that I respect a ton and has done tremendously. And I have actually been at a restaurant while their CEO was also dining there. And my husband and I were kind of, you know, mm. with googly eyes staring like we're, you know, shocked by a celebrity type of thing. <laughs> and that was, uh, that is Stripe. So ding, 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 if I got the right answer. You, you got it right. I think we both know you probably knew the answer before this, but it's a fun <laughs> way to get to it. But yeah, we were, we, uh, we, we got to talk to uh, a senior leader at Stripe, Jean DeWitt. Um, and yeah, it was, it was cool to talk to her because one, like in the back of our mind, I think, as we were talking to her, like, you know, we knew that Stripe is like one of the most, uh, you know, high valued, uh, startups. And so that's kind of in the back of my mind. I've been tracking them for a little while as I think most people have, cause they've just been getting massive rounds of funding. And I know that their, their co-founders are super young as well, mm-hmm. but we got to talk to Jean and what was cool is cause as, uh, as the head of sales, she walked us through how she's built the sales leadership team. And a lot of that comes from within and, and in terms of uh, internal promotions. And I think that it was something that as we were talking to her, it sounds like she's really mastered it because she has a lot of criteria in terms of kind of how to evaluate first time managers, how to prepare reps to become first time managers, and ultimately just how she kind of you know continues to coach and develop her sales leadership team, which I have to imagine has had some part in that great valuation in their success. Yeah, 100%. Actually, 60% of her managers have been promoted from within, which is huge. Like That's imagine great. the, you know, the, the savings on training, the cost savings to hire, the loyalty that you're building in with these employees. Uh, it's just beneficial all around. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's exactly what we're going to talk about. We're going to go hang out with Jean right now, and she's going to walk us through uh, all of her process, her why, her how, her whens. So let's get into it. Hey, Jean. Welcome to Reveal. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. And we are super excited to talk today about leveling up folks within your company and and growing Stripe and and hearing a lot more about your background. So thanks for joining us again. Um, Of course, we're all still working from home. We thought many months ago that this would change, but has not been the case. So would love uh, your take on um, advice from working from home. Advice from working from home. I <laughs> am probably the worst to ask this question of right now. Um, due to COVID, we wound up uh, deciding to uh, sell our place a little sooner than anticipated. And so I have wound up uh working from my parents' house, something I never thought I would do in my life. And that has meant um, I spend 
uh, I would say half of my week actually working from their bathroom, uh, which it turns out is where the Internet is strongest in the house. So <laughs> um, maybe my my advice um, is, you know, stay creative. Um, and it's sort of interesting what the response has been to that. Uh, some people have really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, but beyond that, I think my other big takeaways I'm sh- sure everyone has had is just Zoom exhaustion. And so trying to do a better job of thinking through whether a meeting should be done via Zoom or on the phone and trying to walk around a little bit more. I can definitely feel for you. I have recorded more than one podcast in my bathroom, so you won't know which one they are. <laughs> Maybe the audio sounds a little different. <laughs> that is the good thing about uh, about the the podcast scenario. I did negotiate with my father to be able to use their bedroom because I was worried about the echo in the bathroom today. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> That's funny. Well, speaking of learning experiences, learning how to work from home, you relocated during your tenure at Google to Australia from the Asia Pacific sales, APAC. What were some of the most memorable experiences from that time? Sure. When So when I went out to APAC, um, prior to that, I'd been running the small business sales team and a channel sales team for the U.S., and so I went to APAC, which is a very different market, has different market dynamics, different ways in which you sell, often with a more channel orientation. And I was also taking on the mid-market segment. So that's sort of 100 to 1,000 employees, whereas I was used to more of the velocity SMB sale. Um, and so one of the most memorable experiences was, you know, to, to be quite honest, on some level, I wasn't a totally qualified sales manager at that point. I, over the course of my first couple of weeks there, figured out who is the strongest account executive on the team and, you know, went went to him and said, look, I'll make you a deal. (laughs) You teach me how to sell mid-market deals and I will do my best to be an excellent advocate for the things that the APAC team needed back with with headquarters. And so he and I really paired up side by side and he, you know, I wrote along on a ton of deals, learned from him, debriefed, I would take calls myself and he really became a coach of mine um, while I ramped up on, on how to sell effectively in these more complex sales at that time. Um, and, you know, I, as a result, um, really, you know, one developed uh, more sales expertise and then also more of a love for sales, honestly. Um, and he actually uh, today is an account executive at Stripe with me. Um, so I think, uh, gosh, it might have been six years after that, if, if not even more. Six years later, we were you know, still close and in touch and are working together again. Um, the other probably most memorable thing about being out there was I was very determined to not get cut off from being a part of the you know, main conversations happening at headquarters. And so we, like most sales teams, uh, you know, did a weekly forecast call for the global leadership team. And the original plan was that we would alternate these. And so I would only deliver a forecast every other uh, week. But I really just wanted to be a part of everything. So for the entire time that I was out in APAC, uh, I took a 4 a.m. forecast call every single Tuesday um, which, uh, now, now sort of has some COVID like properties because at 4 a.m. I obviously took the thing from my bed. Um, so <laughs> feels a little similar to how we're working today. 
Oh, it's funny. I can only imagine what a 4 a.m. forecast call would, would feel like. I'm, uh, I, I was up at seven today with the presentation and I felt like I was still stuck in second gear. So to be, to be that committed is impressive. Uh, well, let's dive into your background a little bit. You graduated from Duke and Stanford GSB, worked at Google for nearly 10 years, and then you were the CRO over a dial pad before joining Stripe. Can you tell us a little bit more about your journey in that overall career trajectory? Sure. I started at Google straight out of college. I had grown up in the Bay Area and uh, my father had worked in tech and I felt like he'd had a really interesting career, had done a ton of global travels. He was actually a a sales executive. And so I I wanted to get into the tech industry. I actually meant to go into sales, uh, but at that time at Google, they sort of slotted you where they needed you. And so I ended up on the Gmail user operations team, so in a support capacity. So I, I did that role for four years, started out answering tickets. You know, why, why are you reading my email? What's a label? Why, why does this product not have a contacts list? All of that type of stuff. And then ended up managing the team two years into my time there. And over the course of four years, aspired to be a senior leader at Google. And when I looked at the folks around me, felt like the leaders I admired the most had a bunch of skills when it came to tackling increasingly ambiguous strategy questions that I didn't necessarily feel I had. And I also felt that after four years at Google and working pretty hard, I was starting to get a bit of tunnel vision, didn't necessarily know very much about, you know, the broader business world. Uh, And so decided to leave to get my MBA um, to get, in particular, more good quantitative skills, as well as more broad business exposure. But I loved Google, and so uh, plans to come back, which I did, although when I came back, I really wanted to be on the revenue side of things. And so uh, a boss that I had had pre-business school had moved over to what was then called Google Apps, and this was sort of before cloud was an industry term. And so he was leading the um, SMB and mid-market sales team for what's now G Suite. So I, I went back both because I wanted to get into sales and then also explicitly to work for him. I think that's been sort of a hallmark of my career is a lot of the roles I've taken on, I've chosen because of the leader that I would be reporting to um, in my sense that I could learn a lot from that person. So came in to run their small business segment, um, uh, get sales ops off the ground. So use some of those analytical skills that I had just developed and then run their sort of long tail uh, reseller channel sales team. And did that for about a year and a half and then had that APAC opportunity that we just discussed. So it was totally out of left field. You know, I'd never thought about working internationally at that point in my career. I knew nothing about the Asia Pacific market, didn't know a number of things about the types of teams I would be managing, et cetera. But it felt like an opportunity to go, um, you know, be uncomfortably excited and hopefully increase my learning curve so much that, you know, I'd wind up a much, much different and better leader. So so did that and then came back and did a similar role, but for the Americas, so North and, and Latin America. And then after four years, just kind of couldn't get my learning curve quite where I wanted to be and felt like to take on some of the other functional responsibility I was interested in, I'd have to do some lateral moves at at Google, which I didn't really want to do. And so started talking to some startups and had the opportunity with Dialpad um, materialize, which was to be their CRO and run sales, marketing, and all of partnerships. So basically everything money-making for the company. 
uh, which was exactly what I wanted to do. And the product was a SaaS communications product. Um, so I was familiar with that because uh, it was sort of related to G Suite. And so it felt like the right opportunity. And so went there, learned a ton, you know, worked with the founder, helping raise our Series C, launched a whole new product line. And then after about a year and a half, it just wasn't quite the right fit. And my first boss at Google was the COO of Stripe and had given me a call. So I gave her a call and said, you know, I'd, I'd love to learn more about Stripe. And it felt like an excellent company that was doing really interesting things where I saw myself being able to have another 10 plus year career. Um, and so that's where I've been for the last four and a half years. I love that story. I think something that really stands out are just the connections that you've made over your career and how you know, it comes back. It comes back whether you're looking to move internally when five years down the road when you're looking for your next opportunity, but building those relationships at even early on in your career is so vital. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, you, you talked a lot about a, a lot of different aspects of your career journey. Is there a specific moment that really sticks out as defining for you? I think there are two and they're a little different. The first one is, you know, I was incredibly fortunate to become a manager at 24. That's that's pretty unique. Um, you know, Google was in a hyper growth phase. And so you got some opportunities that, you know, people don't often come by. And I think that was a career defining moment because it really defined how I've ultimately ended up being as a leader. As you can imagine, as a 24 year old, a lot of the folks that are going to be reporting to you have more work experience than than you do. I really needed to learn how to not only be capable of being decisive and lead, but also being very inclusive and open to feedback because it was highly unlikely that I was going to know the answer to everything given how little work experience I had. And so I think that's formed how I am as a leader where I really, really like to get a lot of feedback, pushback, good intellectual debate, but then ultimately be ready and able to make tough calls. That really sticks out to me. The other one actually was that APAC experience where, you know, my career, like I said, started in operations. And so I sort of had a very much like an efficiency lens to everything I did. And I would say when I got the um, Google app sales role in North America post business school, I took the same approach to sales where I was just like, a lot, you know, this is, is, it's an operation. It's about moving things across the funnel. It's about understanding the numbers, you know, and how do you do this efficiently? And I don't think I had any real appreciation for the art and the human side of it. And it was that experience in APAC that helped me see the power of when you marry the art and the science of sales. And I think that's when I really actually fell in love with the function of sales. That's great. And so that brings us to today. Uh, you're at Stripe. You're the head of revenue and growth for the Americas. Um, Stripe, first of all, is an amazing company, respected a ton from the outside. Tell us, first of all, a little bit about your role there. And then secondly, how has the current environment impacted the business? So my role, uh, revenue and growth sort of encompasses the entire customer lifecycle at Stripe. So um, I run as a, about a 200-person organization, everything from folks that are doing outbound prospecting 
through to uh, account executives and solution architects that are predominantly focused on new customer acquisition, implementation teams, and then account management and customer solutions engineering. And then these days, Stripe is a whole lot more than just a payments company. So we have about seven discrete products, many of which are very complicated and have decision makers that are different from necessarily the payments decision makers. So we're also building out a product sales or kind of co-prime sales team. And then we run the full gamut from selling into startups all the way through, you know, your global 1000 type accounts. So a lot of my role, having started four and a half years ago, the company was about six months into sales at the time. And so it's been my job to build a lot of those functions from 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 nothing. When I started, we just had account executives and account managers and no, nothing else in between. So figure out when it's the right time to specialize, you know, build a new function, move into a new segment, et cetera, and get that off the ground. And then, you know, Stripe is also very globally oriented. So work uh, these days with my global counterparts to also make sure we stay super well, well integrated. On your second question, the impact of COVID has been really interesting. For the customer Stripe works with, it's having a dramatic impact on both ends of the spectrum. So you basically have a class of customers whose revenue is is completely drying up and are in a really tough spot. And then you also have a class of customers that are hyper growth. And so we've, we've had to figure out how to respond to both sides of those and how to be a great partner to cut customers who are struggling right now, knowing that, you know, at the end of the day, still had a sound business model and hopefully there'll be great recovery. And so what are the right sets of things to do now to help them shore things up where possible to be creative about, you know, how we continue to work together, et cetera. And then on the other side of the fence, you know, you have um, folks that are, are, you know, expanding rapidly and are two years ahead of, you know, their annual goals. So we've also been doing some work to sort of figure out what are the patterns there? Are there other, you know, folks in the market that that look like them that we might want to be pursuing? Um, and then are there folks in between where maybe given some of the current dynamics, um, something that what, you know, payments might not have been at the top of the list for them and now is as as obviously the Internet shifts that much more online for purchasing when you can't do it in person. Very interesting. And I imagine that's a challenge too, right? Like how does your you know, sales and AMs and, and all the customer facing folks in between you kind of have to switch your, your playbook up a little bit in your approach, right? For when you're going to the, the, uh, the client base, you said that, you know, struggling and, and slowing down versus at the same time, we also have, you know, folks that are in the opposite boat, which is hyper growth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we really, in in March, you know, got our heads together and every part of the organization, you know, from the folks doing prospecting through to account management to figure out how to change our content, our engagement, everything that we would talk about, because a lot of it wasn't relevant anymore. The problems people had had a month ago were not the problems they were having today. And so you had to think about where is Stripe valuable in the current environment? And, and then how do you line that up with what customers actually need right now? Well, let's get into your leadership philosophy a little bit here, because you had a great story of your career trajectory and you getting into management for the first time. So I'm curious, seeing that you were promoted from an IC into management during your career, what's your take on the internal promotion path for first-time managers? I am a huge, huge proponent on looking to promote from within first. 
you know, I certainly benefited from someone taking a risk on me at a certain point, and so always want to do the same thing with my own teams. I actually, uh, before this podcast today, went to look up my management org, and so I have 26 managers in my organization, and 15 of those, so nearly 60%, all started out as individual contributors within our organization and are now managers. Definitely skew towards promoting from within first. That being said, there are times when you need leaders who the organization can grow into rather than who are growing with the organization. Things I'll look at across my management team are, are there places where we need to get up the learning curve faster than we are today? Where if you bring in some outside talent, the acumen and the experience that they have helps us not have to reinvent a wheel. Um, and then there are also times where that experience also helps you in setting a new bar for what excellence looks like. So a good example of that was when Stripe started to move up market. So when, when I first started the company, we predominantly sold to Series A and Series B startups. And as you can imagine, there's a certain sales process that works well that's you know pretty velocity oriented um, in that space. And over the course of the first couple of years, we started moving up market and then we're getting pretty squarely in a, into enterprise. And at the time, there was no one in the sales organization who had sold into an enterprise account before. And there were individuals that were definitely doing a good job of it, you know, learning as they went and were able to close very significant legitimate enterprise deals. But the approach to it, there was also just a gap between how we were sort of getting by and doing it and, you know, what I'd seen in, in prior roles from an execution perspective. And so bringing in some folks who actually had done it before, you know, you all of a sudden could pair up your top performers with this new experienced person and they could have this aha moment of, wow, that person can do a thing that I don't know how to do. And now I want to, to be better. So that's sort of the other thing I'll look for is kind of when when do we need that aha moment that maybe an external hire might be able to give you. The other thing to enable this that I would say Stripe has done a really nice job of is we run a very structured internal mobility process. So every single quarter, the first week of the last month of the quarter, we run internal mobility for all of our open roles. Um, and anyone who's eligible for the role can apply, and we encourage people to apply, even if they're nervous at their borderline. And, and then those decisions go into effect on the first of the month and next quarter. So as an example, we just ran um, this process a couple of weeks ago and had three people apply for manager roles, and only one actually got it. But the other two, I think, still had a very positive experience, learned a lot, understand what are some of the things that they're going to want to work on over the next couple quarters to put themselves in a good spot for for future opportunities. That's really interesting. That's super like interesting. That wow, we're on the same page today. <laughs> yeah, you go for it. I like that mobility program, and I'm curious if you see folks from other functions coming into sales through that process and where you typically see them come from. Yeah, we've had a number. We actually, so uh, we just had a person come in this quarter who had been in our support organization who's um, coming over to our um, implementation consultant team. We've had folks from recruiting have come into sales. 
you know, they've got to close candidates. You can close deals. Um, so, you know, that's been good. We had a person from finance come over when we first kicked off our outbound prospecting team. She was, I think, our second hire <laughs> for outbound. So we've really had them from from all over the organization, although I wish we had more. Um, I think we're more of a net exporter of talent into Stripe than an importer. So hopefully we can sort of get that balanced over time. <laughs> I'm personally a fan of this. It's ex- this style. It's exactly how I got started in sales. Actually, I was in an entry level support role in the CS org, and there's like I think 12 AE positions they were trying to trying to expand in SMB. And they said, Hey, if you're even remotely interested, we want to you know we want to talk to you. Deadlines tomorrow at 12. Yeah. So I was like, nah, I don't really think I'm like I don't think I'm really like a sales person. And then I kind of slept on it, thought about it. And it kind of goes back to what you said earlier, Gene, of like, this opportunity just seems really great. I should probably just jump on it. And so at 11.59, I walked into the office and I was, and I put my name in the hat <laughs> and uh, did a pitch off and ended up getting the role and was in sales for six years after that and, you know, with some good success there. So I can definitely say, you know, looking outside of the sales org, but looking for that kind of cross-departmental opportunity is is huge. Nice. Are, are you also... Uh... The salesperson who, you know, closes their last large deal at 11.59 p.m. on the last day of the quarter. <laughs> I tried not to, but I won't pretend that I'm immune. Um, but, it, you know, did it close is what we care about. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Um, there you go. Yes. Admit I that. I tried to limit that. I, I think as uh, once you experience that once or twice, it's like the last feeling you ever want to go through again. So I've done better trying to close early, but, uh, and, and then to it again, you know, at Gong, we ended up, uh, a lot of people, like you said, move from support to other roles, recruiting into sales, sales into CSM. So it's really, it's really healthy to see that. And it helps the culture overall yeah, too. When people in recruiting, right. When you see people say, Hey, like this person was in sales, now they're in marketing or vice versa. You really get a, a different and a wider talent pool. Yeah, absolutely. So this mobility program seems like a great initiative for, maybe mid-sized and larger organizations where there are enough people who are um, interested and able to transition and transfer to different roles and teams. How else have you been able to scale uh, this program of, you know, specifically on the promotion side of things within the same org? Yeah, there are a couple other things um, I think Stripe does really nicely, which is one, as a company, we've done, a really good job of teasing apart leadership and management. There's a a really strong expectation of Stripe that everyone on the team is going to be a leader. And so individual contributors are constantly doing major projects that drive our strategy, our operations forward. And, you know, think of management more as, responsible for delivering performance reviews, you know, making up-leveling decisions, et cetera, than necessarily in charge of all things strategic. The other thing we have consistently done is to really set people up to start doing the job before they have it. So as you, you know, can imagine, once you are the manager, you're in charge of the forecast for your team. So when it comes to team meetings, if you have someone who's starting to look at management How can they potentially take over aspects of that forecast call? Similarly, Stripe has a really strong spin-up buddy program. So when we have new hires, they're assigned a dedicated buddy for the first 90 days whose responsibility really is to make them successful. 
And so we'll purposely put folks that have a strong desire to get uh, into management into multiple spin-up buddy type roles so that they can get exposure to different personality types, different challenges while people are getting off the ground. Since, again, that's something that you're going to be doing once you are a manager. And then we also try to just be good, you know, general management best practices, but uh, about career conversations so that you can tee management interest up early and then really cultivate that. So it's a big one within my staff. As an example, we do an annual talent planning process. And we flag everyone within the organization that we know either has an expressed interest to become a people manager or who we personally think would be excellent at it, whether that's, you know, 90 days from now or a year and a half from now, and are quite purposeful about tracking plans with them to get them on the types of projects, you know, exposure situations that will position them effectively to move into a management role. I like the idea that it's like, hey, who we think, you know, we can kind of scout. But it's also a matter of who raises their hand. And I imagine it probably becomes challenging in terms of like the cream of the crop, right? Like who are really who who are we going to prioritize here? So what are the qualities that you look for in ICs when considering a move into management or maybe and maybe even on top of that, the ones that are kind of uh, expedited qualities, if you will? So my litmus test and I tell this to anybody in my organization who's interested in moving into management is when I announce that you're going to be the new manager, will everyone on the team think that's be, uh, that's a no-brainer and be really excited? And if I feel I can answer yes to that question, then I think you're ready. And so, you know, normally when I'm giving advice at that point, then, you know, it's about are you taking on the right work so that people think, wow, okay, this person was effectively managing the team unofficially, you know, before getting this role. So, the, the things I'll look to see that they're doing are, one, are they taking on projects that really move the sales team forward? That's one of the things about sales at Stripe is we sort of expect people to spend 80% of their time doing things to, to hit their target and, and another 20 doing things to advance the organization, you know, whether that's refining some of our sales playbooks or running an experiment on, on something else or interacting with product and engineering. But that'll be the first one I look at is, does this person have a track record of taking on and actually personally initiating projects that move our organization forward? The second is a great sales manager needs to run a well-oiled machine. They need to really understand pipeline, the sales funnel, the math behind the process. And so I'll look at how they run their territory. You know, is this somebody who can consistently hit their number quarter after quarter because they understand what needs to be true in Q1 to set themselves up for success in Q3? And if they're doing that and can articulate consistently how they're going to get to their number, then I feel comfortable that when they've got, you know, six, seven people under them, that they'll be able to use similar practices to now be able to accurately tell whether the team they're running will do the same. And the last is I expect an excellent manager to be great at talent development. They need to be able to teach skills and they need to be able to determine where somebody is excellent and has a set of strengths that we can lean into and where we might need to to shore up some opportunities for development. So similarly, and sort of in line with my last answer, I'll look at whether or not they've been a really strong mentor on the team. So are they taking on explicit opportunities for mentorship, like the spin-up buddies I mentioned? Or are they viewed as a go-to resource when people have a super hairy deal that they want to use as a sounding board? That's interesting because it sounds like you figured out 
what what the dynamic oftentimes is for AEs moving into leadership is pretty much quota attainment, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of times the top producers aren't really great managers or coaches could be natural. could be that they just don't have the, you know, haven't developed those skills. Yeah. Um, you know, players like, I'm sorry, I'm a big basketball fan for any basketball <laughs> fans, but like, you know, uh, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, renowned some of the best players all time, also known to be the worst coaches of all time. Yeah. And so it sounds like you have a pretty good, you know, um, approach in terms of mixing in, you know, personal results, strategy, and also the ability to level up others. Yeah, I, I I think for every maybe three conversations I have about, you know, people wanting to get into management, I'm having one conversation about I don't actually think you want to do this. Um, so, um, right. you know, I, I always sort of talk folks through like you do realize that being a sales manager is sort of one part sales and one part, you know, psychologist. And like, it's going to be your job to have performance conversations and it's your job to manage people out when it's not going well. And it's now your job to be the person removing roadblocks and, you know, handling cross-functional situations that if you're a top performer on sales often frustrate you. Um, And so that's where you can get into meaningful conversations around is what you're seeking really people management, or is it just that you want to have a broader impact? Um, and there are a lot of high-performing salespeople that I actually think it's more about wanting to see continued impact on the organization than necessarily wanting to do the job description of a people manager. Um, and so when that's the case, you know, then it's really interesting to tease out ways that they can lean into being a leader without having to be a manager. So at, at Gong, we love data. We love being able to measure what's working and, and what's working effectively. Are there specific metrics or data that you use, uh, particularly with your first-time managers, to understand um, if they're doing the job effectively and where they may need additional coaching so that they can be better managers? So Stripe has um, done a really nice job of uh, – sort of documenting expectations of capabilities for different roles and levels. I'm going to call this levels and ladders. So for a sales manager and, you know, different uh, levels of seniority of sales manager, we basically have five core capabilities that we expect you to, to be effective at. And then we define what those look like um, depending on your seniority and the scope of the role. So when we do a performance review, we uh, will give folks feedback on each of those five dimensions and the specific things that they either are, are doing well or, or could build upon and, um, and sort of calibrate that way. Within that, there's obviously also a quantitative part. So we'll look at one, you know, is your team hitting its number? But then two, what's the how behind you getting to that number? And so look at various metrics that I'm sure, you know, most sales managers are looking at around your win rates, your cycle time, uh, your forecast predictability or forecast accuracy, also the percent of your team that's hitting target. So did you get there because you just had one rep knock it out or because you actually got the bulk of the folks on your team to be successful? And so we'll use all of those to give folks a, a composite score from uh, you know, a performance review perspective. I think some of the other things that I look at that are maybe a little bit more qualitative is anybody in my organization who moves into a manager role or, or comes in from the outside into one is is expected to put together a 30, 60, 90 day plan. 
Um, and so after the first 30 days, I expect them to publish their insights into what they've heard after talking to every single member of their team, you know, getting on a lot of calls out on the front lines, talking to key cross-functional counterparts, what are all the insights they had? And then based on that, what are one or two big rocks that they really want to pursue from a strategic perspective to help, um, you know, uh, improve the tra trajectory of the team? Um, so that's something we do with everybody. And then the other thing I really look at with first-time managers is after they've done those 30 days and they've talked to everybody on their team, I, I like to debrief that with them and figure out how they're assessing talent on their team. And are they good at realizing where the different individuals on their team have strengths and opportunities for development that they will start to then lean into, um, you know, or, or are they, do they need help figuring out how to ask the right questions and how to assess, um, uh, assess talent? Um, and then I think the last one for me is like, you've got to own your number. <laughs> um, so I would say forecast rigor is, is important to me. People need to know where they stand, you know, at any point in the quarter, why they stand there and what they're going to do about it. Uh, and so, uh, there are a lot of folks that, you know, their first couple of forecast calls learn, learn a lot, um, and then get, get a lot of better afterwards. Yeah. I think just bringing this data driven approach. Um, and building that skill set with new managers is something that is not as focused on when they're individual contributors and reps, they own their own number, but how do you bring that data-driven approach to measure what's going on with everybody on your team, measure what's, you know, ensuring that your, your forecast is accurate, that um, you are taking a quantitative with some qualitative, as, you know, uh, aspects to that approach as well, but that is a skill in and of itself. Oh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> definitely takes takes some time for folks to adjust. Um, but, you know, the, I think the other thing we'll do there is, um, you know, have them. So I, I obviously forecast like with my staff. So often the frontline managers aren't necessarily coming to my staff's forecast, but each of them will run their own forecast meetings. And we use a similar t deck in those than, that we use in, instead of dashboards, obviously, um, in mine. So we try to mimic that that approach to forecasting in, in every uh, at every level of the organization. Curious, are there any of the, um, you said some of those kind of like uh, big rock initiatives that these new managers have tackled and then they report on them. Has there any, has there ever been one that really just like blew you away or you found really surprising? Huh, that's a good question. I don't know that I would say I've had something really catch me off guard, although I've been, one of the things that's great about promoting from within is that folks can really hit the ground running. And so often, actually, when we interview, you know, we sort of effectively wind up asking the 30, 60, 90 day question. And, you know, the ideas they have about the things that they really want to change as an individual contributor on the team, you know, are very interesting. And so I think one of the things that's great about promoting from within is often in those first 90 days, they really can affect change, whereas an external manager is still getting their footing. So I think I've, I've more frequently been impressed by the speed with which a new manager can have impact than necessarily that it was some totally out of left field idea that, you know, no one had ever thought of. What are some of your top initiatives and priorities for 2020 and how have they evolved in the era of COVID? So there are a lot of things we're working on. I would say the two that really stand out for 2020 have been 
you know, Stripe has been selling into the enterprise space for the last three years. And I think towards the end of last year really hit a tipping point where we're now, you know, a, a, a substantial percent of the company's revenue comes from enterprise. Our, our product is really enterprise ready. And so we're at this tipping point into really needing to dial up um, and scale our enterprise sales organization. So that's been a big focus for us this year is within sales, building out that team more, and then also continue to work really effectively with marketing, with product um, to have an integrated strategy to, to pursue the enterprise market. The second one I mentioned a little bit earlier was, you know, when I started at Stripe, Stripe was mostly a payments company. In the last 18 months, we've launched a huge number of products. So Stripe billing for uh, SaaS companies or recurring subscription-based business models, um, Terminal for omni-channel or in-person sales, uh, Stripe issuing, it sort of helps with a number of financial services-oriented um, business models. So we're moving from being a single product sales organization to being a multi-product sales organization and are figuring out, you know, what are the set of products that, uh, you know, our existing AEs can sell quite naturally as part of the payment sale and where do you need a more specialized sales force for a product maybe like like billing? And then how do you marry those two together? So those have been two of our big focus areas uh, for this year. I think from, from a COVID impact perspective, the strategy itself hasn't changed. So our, our core focus remains the same. What has changed is... Um, some of the types of companies that we would pursue. And then, as I mentioned previously, the things that matter to them right now might be different. An example of this would be when COVID started happening, you could see certain, you know, categories, say grocery, really taking off and being hyper growth uh, during this phase. And so we had initial hypothesis of, okay, let's go lean into hyper growers. And one of the things we learned is right now, most of them are trying to keep their head above water. And so they don't necessarily have the bandwidth to be making major infrastructural decisions unless that is something that's clearly breaking during this period. And so have, you know, instead learned that you've got a whole class of businesses that are currently making business model pivots to shift their revenue online. And so how do we identify and, and lean into those? So it's sort of been same, I would say, overarching strategy, but more how are you directing yourself within the market? And are there any new pieces of data that you are relying on these days that you didn't necessarily track as closely before? We track macroeconomic trends a lot, a lot more closely. So sort of have divided, um, you know, the world up into sort of supply and demand side companies that get impacted by COVID and whether they're first order supply and demand or second order supply and demand. We look at that a lot more because it's been hard to predict, you know, is last week indicative of next week? <laughs> Hopefully some of those give us a sense of when you have a new trend emerging. The other thing we've paid a lot more attention to is just top of funnel metrics. So, again, how do you get an earlier signal on whether or not things are changing, either in the types of companies that are now entering or not entering your funnel, speed with which they're moving across it? You know, you can imagine stuff that's already been in pipeline for a while. Some of that stuff might fall out, but for the most part, it's reasonably baked. So we've been trying to pay a lot more attention to leading indicators from a sales perspective. 
That makes a ton of sense. And it sounds like you guys are tracking a ton of information and a ton of data on a regular basis. This is just adding another layer on top of that, but highly vital uh, during these times. If you could uh, give any advice to leaders who are operating in this environment in regards to maintaining a strong culture, what would that be? For me, it's been more about just having to dial up the frequency of communication. When you're not sort of interacting as organically with one another. And this this also happens, you know, when companies start with a single headquarters and add new offices, but people have a harder time, you know, intuiting what's going on. So some of the things that we've done are for my staff, we do a Monday morning, you know, Zoom meeting first thing Monday morning to just get on the same page with each other of what came up next week, you know, what should we, sorry, last week, what should we all be aware of? What are things where um, we're seeing patterns and we need to be more responsive? So we sort of try to use our collective energy together on that. I think related to that, I personally tend to be more, okay, let's get things done oriented. And so I think also just bringing more of the human element purposefully to work in communications. So that's the other thing we consistently build into our Monday morning stand-up and other meetings is just actually what is everybody up to? <laughs> so, which again, I think sort of would happen organically, you know, in an office before. And now you got to be a bit more explicit about it. And then have just tried to have a more regular communication cadence. I think the one thing that's been nice about the current environment is, you know, if everybody's on uh, Zoom, then it levels the playing field a bit. So we actually are Q2 all hands. The feedback was it was actually one of our best all hands yet, uh, just because we were so buttoned up and ensuring that we were going to run this, you know, tight meeting if you're going to take 90 minutes over a video. So I think that's been a, a benefit. And then I think the other thing that's uh, worked well, too, is people do really need to disconnect and it's hard to uh, maybe convince yourself to do so right now. And it doesn't look like there's a fun vacation around the corner. So Stripe has implemented no meeting Wednesdays. Obviously for salespeople, sometimes they'll take customer calls, but it gives you an opportunity to sort of schedule your week differently. We've had a couple company-wide Fridays off. And then as a leader, you know, I, when I take time off, um, I'm actually taking this Friday through next Wednesday off and that very vocal about it so that people, you know, see that leaders are doing this and feel comfortable doing the same. That's terrific. We, we also do the no meeting Wednesdays and it has been a lifesaver in this environment. I'll have to say that. Yeah. For, for me, me too. Um, the, you know, here we are meeting on a Wednesday, but, uh, this morning was phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> a happy exception today to hang out with you. Um, well, cool. Now the final question we ask all of our guests before we wrap up, Jean, how would you describe sales in one word? Oh man. <laughs> how about decide? I like it. <laughs> That's what sales comes down to at the end of the day. You got to decide on something. Yeah. It's funny. Tough my decisions. favorite part of that question is actually just the amount of time people take to think about it. Like some people are like answer right away and other people are like, oh man, let me really, let me give you my best answer. What do I really think here? So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got, it's probably telling for me that my answer was decide and I did it relatively quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Gene, thank you again for hanging out with us. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and expertise and I uh, hope we cross paths again soon. Thanks, Gene. Yes. Likewise. Thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate it. 
Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.